Friends of the podcast, welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 81, and it's part number three of our series called Women's Voices. You need to hear 12 weeks, 12 women, 12 voices that you need to hear. We're kicking the men off of the stage. Uh, We're handing the mic to some ladies who have had a, uh, I would say, profound impact on my own thinking, and uh, giving them the the stage, so to speak, to share their hearts, uh, their passion, and their wisdom. And so today, uh, today we're sitting down with Libby Schrader. Uh, who is Libby? Well, she'll tell you a whole lot more about her story, but let's just say that life brought her from a career in the music industry uh, of New York City and Los Angeles all the way to the classroom of Duke University, where she's currently working towards her doctorate and a whole lot more on that uh in just a few moments but first a few things number one patreon patreon.com slash what if project is a place where you can go to support the show financially uh a bunch of different tiers of giving every tier gets its own reward uh three dollars a month all the way up to thirty dollars a month and some tiers in between uh rewards are a bonus blog post uh bonus podcast episodes a book that i send you in the mail all sorts of things, all sorts of goodies. Uh, number two, the What If Project community is a closed Facebook group uh, where you can go to kind of find people who maybe like yourself are uh, wandering through some sort of wilderness of their faith, trying to figure out, discern what they believe about God, uh, Jesus, faith, Christianity, spirituality, all different sorts of things. Uh, people from various walks of life, various Thoughts about faith are in there, uh, navigating through their own wilderness, and we're all in there together, and we're cheering each other on. Uh, Nobody's trying to convert anybody, shame anybody for believing the wrong things or anything like that. Uh, Everybody's just cheering each other on, supporting each other, and it's really turning into be quite a uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful place. So go check that out. Uh, Links to that along with uh, Patreon are in the show notes. And lastly, number three... Uh, The What If Project Heretic Shop. Uh, If you want some What If Project swag, uh, merchandise, whatever you want to call it, uh, go check it out. We have t-shirts, men and women's t-shirts. We have hoodies. We have jackets. We have backpacks. We have mugs. We have stickers. We have hats. We have blankets. We have tote bags. All different sorts of things for all different sorts of people. Uh, Some stuff is uh, pretty... Uh, we'll push the boundaries, so to speak, maybe ruffle some feathers, some of the, the slogans on some of the shirts and stuff, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Go check it out. Some people have picked up some stuff already. Uh, I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. You can go to whatifproject.net, uh, and right there on the homepage, there's a link for shop. Uh, click it, and it will bring you to the What If Project Heretic Shop in all of its glory and amazement. And so uh, that said, special music today is actually from our guest, uh, Libby Schrader. I mentioned that she was a uh, kind of involved in the music industry uh, for a long time, uh, 12 years, I believe, that she says. Uh, but the song is called Magdalene, and she's going to actually start off the episode by telling you why this song is so significant and uh, how it played such a big role in her own spiritual journey. So pretty cool. As we roll into the episode and the song begins to play, uh, I want to read for you a short excerpt from a book 
that uh, Libby will mention in the episode called The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene by uh, Jane Schaberg. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting quote uh, that I think sets up our conversation really, really well. So here it is. It uh, comes from page 37, so very early on in the book. And she says this, Imagining the Magdalene as this poet who never wrote a word and was buried at the crossroads, still lives, who is a continuing presence, may help the exploration of the crossroads itself and of roads not taken in the first Christian centuries and now. Studying her exclusion from the patriarchal procession leads to reflection on the types of power that are best shunned. The desire to join that procession is now destroyed. And so here it is. With that, my friends, here is my conversation with Libby Schrader. Enjoy. I went to the garden of the Holy Virgin, Mary most pure, conceived without sin. I was down on my knees with the dirt on my skin, and I asked for the blessing of the Magdalene. songs of the flesh like a holy hymn oh i asked for the wisdom of a magdalene she's a bleeding heart full of blinding hey everybody welcome back to the what if project podcast uh today we have a very special guest joining us um i would like to introduce you uh, to my friend, Elizabeth Schrader. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. It's Hi. great to have you drop in. Thanks so, so good much to have you. be here. So uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I heard about you in a tweet uh, from Diana mm-hmm. Butler Bass, mm-hmm. where she mentioned an article uh, about you and your work that was recently put out by Episcopal News, I believe it is. Um, it was, yeah, it was, um, I think it was Religion News Service, but um, the Episcopal Church did pick that up. And um, I, I'm an Episcopalian, a cradle Episcopalian. So that meant an awful lot to me that they put my research on their website. Very cool. So I read the article actually multiple times and I was really blown away by the research that you're doing um, at Duke on Mary Magdalene specifically. But I also learned in a quick Google search uh, that you used to go by Libby Schrader and were a singer songwriter in New York City. Is that correct? Yes, um, yes, both LA and New York. I had a 12-year career in the music business. Um, and uh, it was actually that that led to my switching to religion scholarship because I wrote a song about Mary Magdalene. And it sort of, I said, oh, well, if I'm going to record this song about Mary Magdalene, I, I need to know something about her. Yeah. But it has actually led me down the world's deepest rabbit hole, which continues. And so I'm just like, well, so much for this music career. <laughs> now I'm doing something else with my life, apparently. Right. Um, but it's great. I mean, Duke is a fantastic program. Um, doctoral stipends are far more reliable than yeah, touring. Sure. Yeah. So in some ways, it's, I, I prefer it in some ways. Okay. So uh, before we jump into the, your work about uh, Mary and all those different things, maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and Mainly, what has that transition been like, like from the music scene in like a big city 
into the classroom of Duke University. What has that been like for you? Well, gosh, the whole thing has been so strange. Mm, I bet. <laughs> in many ways. You know, because um, I'm a, like a pop rock singer songwriter. I'm not a um, Christian artist. I, would, I mean, I'm a Christian as a person, but I'm sure. not um, a Christian artist. Yep. And so, um, you know, my, my songs are usually about, you know, stuff that happens in life or relationships or whatever. And so um, when I wrote this song about Mary Magdalene, I was living in Brooklyn at the mm. time. And um, I've always had a very active spiritual life. And I had recently um, felt a lot closer to Mother Mary. Um, mm. I know a lot of Protestants um, don't feel close to Mother Mary. And in fact, I was raised in an Episcopal church where um, we didn't really talk about that. And mm. my dad would sometimes say, you know, oh, those Catholics and their statues or, you know, like, that's not what we do. My grandma um, said the same thing. <laughs> really? Yep, yeah. Yep. So, so I, I know exactly what it feels like for the Mary thing to feel super weird. Mm. Um, and then I would say, um, while I was living in Brooklyn, um, I just, she came into my life and um, I would go into this garden that was around the corner from where I was living at the time. And it was a garden attached to a Catholic church that was dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And I would go mm. there to meditate and pray sometimes just because it was a beautiful sanctuary, um, especially in a busy city. And um, so one day when I was praying there, um, I I heard an answer, which is not something that happens to me very often. Um, mm. Maybe three times in my life I've heard answers to prayers. Um, but this one was, uh, maybe you should talk to Mary Magdalene about that. Hmm. Which I thought was so strange. Hmm. Like, was that the pizza I ate last night or what was that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was odd because, you know, I was not talking to Mary Magdalene. Yeah, I was talking yeah. to Mother Mary. Huh. Um, but, you know, I just, I remember thinking like, <laughs> hmm. um, it's one of those times when you know that, um, that's, you know, that's not what I was expecting. Yeah. And so, so um, as I was walking home from the garden, I remember thinking, oh, that's kind of a fun lyric. I went to the garden of the Holy Virgin and I asked for the blessing of the Magdalene. I'm like, oh, that's cute. And mm. so I, um, so I just, I started writing a song and it came out really fast. Mm. Um, this, the lyrics just poured out. It was so easy. And um, sometimes songs are very, they take years sometimes for me to, to write. And this yeah. one was super quick. And I was just like, well, gosh, that's interesting. And, and I said, well, now I have a song about Mary Magdalene. I don't really know much about her. You know, I'd, I'd grown up going to church and um, in the Episcopal church and, you know, you know, I'd heard the lectionary and I'm sure I'd read the stories and, but I I wasn't, um, I didn't feel a particularly close connection with her or anything. She, it was just information about a saint. And I thought, well, you know, I can't release a song because I was making a record. I said, I'm not going to release a song um, on this record without knowing about Mary yeah, Magdalene. Yeah, sure. And so, do some research. Yeah, I was just like, oh, I'm going to, I walked over to the Brooklyn Public Library and I was like, oh, I looked at the books. I was like, oh, I'll get the complete idiot's guide to Mary Magdalene, which is what I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was just like, yeah, you know, this will give me the answer that I need and then I'll then I'll uh, be able to release my record. That's basically mm. what I thought was going to happen, but that's not what happened. <laughs> it's just basically, I don't even need to go into the whole story, but ever that book kind of got me curious and that caused me to go to France and wow. find out more about her. And that caused me to meet people who invited me to write things. And then that caused me to do further research. And it eventually led me, I wanted to look at the oldest copy of the Gospel of John. Mm. 
and um, so as a lay person, you know, I didn't speak ancient Greek, not speak, obviously, not read ancient sure, Greek sure. and or, or Latin or anything, but I just, I wanted to look at the oldest copy of the Gospel of John and because that's the one where she's featured most prominently. And, mm. um, and I threw kind of a friend of a friend, a, a scholar at the General Theological Seminary, the Episcopal Seminary in Manhattan, um, she sent me a link to the oldest copy. I had Googled it and I thought, okay, it's Papyrus 66. That's the mm. oldest copy of the Gospel of John. Uh, but I want to look at it. Mm. Um, and I remember the thought that I had was, you know, I just wonder if anything's been changed and maybe there's something the scholars overlooked, um, which is honestly an insane thought yeah. for a lay person to have. Sure. It is an actually insane thought because scholars spend decades like looking at every pen stroke of this yeah. papyrus um and so to think that i could have seen something that they hadn't seen was actually insane yeah. but um but i didn't know that uh and so i said well i just want to look at it and so i um i got this link to a transcription of it and i was just like gosh hasn't it been translated mm. no libby no 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 they have not <laughs> translated a manuscript they translate a critical edition and i was like oh gosh i don't read Greek. So, mm. so I got an, in, <laughs> I was in my apartment in Park Slope, I remember I had one window open to this online transcription and one window open to an interlinear study Bible. And I was just in one window open to Google Translate, <laughs> <laughs> which also does not work right. because it translates into modern Greek. Do not use <laughs> Google Translate, friends. Um, but anyway, so I was just trying to figure it out. And um, I looked basically in every section of Papyrus 66 that has Mary Magdalene. And mm. um, I started in chapter 20 and, you know, it said what it was supposed to say. And then chapter 19, it said what it was supposed to say. And I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, I guess that's it. And, you know, but I had read somewhere that some people think that um, Mary of Bethany is Mary Magdalene. You know, some people think that, but we don't know. So I was like, well, let me just look. Hmm. So I went back to chapter 11 and I saw that there was this huge chunk of text that had been changed. Hmm. And I was like, whoa. And I saw that the name Mary had been crossed out two times. Hmm. And I was like, whoa. What is looks that? Yeah, and the first time the name Mary was changed to Martha, and the second time the name Mary was changed to High Adelphi, which is the sisters, huh. and the verbs had been changed from singular to plural, and I was like, this is what, it looks like they're adding Martha to the story. I mean, I didn't have any training, but to me, it just looked apparent that that's what the scribe was doing. Mm. Um and so I copied the text of it and I forwarded it to the academic at the seminary, Deirdre Good. And I said, Deirdre, look at this. You know, it looks like they're adding Martha to the story and this is our oldest copy. Mm. And she said, oh, very interesting. And I was like, what? Come, like, I didn't say that to her. You know, right. but I was like, <laughs> come on, like, look, this might be Mary Magdalene and they're changing it. Like, does it, you know, is, is, has nobody done anything about this? And mm. I suspect that um, Deirdre thought that the work had already been done because Papyrus 66 was discovered in 1952 mm. in Egypt and published in 1958. Mm. And, you know, there's been lots of scholarship on Papyrus 66. Mm. Um, you know, it had been, you know, 50 something years at that point. I found it in 2012. Mm. And um, I just thought, you know, 
uh, what have what have scholars written? I mean, I think she probably thought that people had already done the work, but me as a layperson who didn't know anything, I was like, well, I want to know. <laughs> sure. Um, and so I marched over to the Brooklyn Public Library again, and I I um, asked for anything on interlibrary loan that I could get with Papyrus 66 talking about it. And so mm. I was able to get a few scholarly articles that way. And people said, yep, the name Mary's been changed to Martha. Huh. Yep, uh, the name Mary's been changed to Hi Adelphi, the sisters. And uh, how weird. That's so interesting. Have you always been a curious person? Because that strikes me as if you're like a singer songwriter, <laughs> and you're into this song that you're writing and you're not like a quote Christian artist and you get into this research and all of a sudden you're off on this crazy trail. like has that always been part of you no i i don't think my friends would say that okay. friends of mine would say you know that i've been kind of an intense person like mm. okay you too is my favorite band okay. and i i like no would shame find in out, that no shame well, in that. <laughs> yeah, no, I love <laughs> and i would like find out their birthdays and yeah. like like you know bono's birthday is may 31st larry's birthday is october 31st i know things like that okay. and like i know their kids names you know yeah. like and they're spouses names like I know those things um and and like but I would like like that's the kind of reason but I didn't like go crazy like I was kind of like really into that band but it's kind of like I would find things that I was interested in and I would go maybe further than most people but um this one I was going really deep Hmm. I hadn't really done stuff like this before I mean it was it was like this it like lit up something in my brain that was that I didn't know was there. Take me back for a minute to that when you felt that you heard Mary say to you, pray to Mary Magdalene. Was this like an audible voice? Was it more of a feeling? Was it kind of a mix? Because when, when I think of myself, like when I'm praying and I feel like I might, you know, quote, hear God talk to me, sometimes it feels more like a feeling or a, almost like a motivation. Like, what was that for you? What happened? Like, what was that like? Well, it was in English. Okay. So, um, but I, I wouldn't, say it was necessarily audible it was okay like thought yeah it was like a thought in english maybe you should talk to mary magdalene right? okay so um yeah i mean that's the best way i can explain it and i just remember thinking it was strange yeah for sure so if if you're on to something here and mary has kind of been left out of some of the the translations or downplayed, I think is what the article said is around kind of like your research is that Mary was downplayed um, throughout history by the ancient scribes. Why, why is that important? Like, what does that mean? Well, for one thing that I do want to clarify is this isn't about translations. This is about the actual Greek text. Okay. Um, so Papyrus 66 um, is in Greek, which is the language of composition hmm. for the gospel. And um, I ended up going to General Theological Seminary because I was getting so you know, obsessed with this. Right. Deirdre <laughs> um, became my thesis advisor, and it was my master's thesis. Um, I ended up looking at over 100 copies of John 11. Um, well, not physically, but online transcriptions and photographs. Hmm. And I found out that it was not just in the oldest copy, but that about one in five copies of John's gospel has a problem around Martha. Hmm. So sometimes you'll see the name Mary changed to Martha. Then I still see Mary doing something that your Bible will say Martha does. So, for instance, the anointing. Sorry, not the anointing. Obviously, Mary's the anointer. Um, the, when, when they're serving Lazarus at table, at yeah. 12, it says, you know, Lazarus is at table, Martha served, and then Mary anoints. Well, I know a bunch of manuscripts where Mary's serving. And hmm. both. Um, 
And so to answer your question, what is this about the legacy of Mary Magdalene? First of all, if Martha were not there in the story, um, it would be there. It would be far more likely that Lazarus's sister Mary is Mary Magdalene. Hmm. And the reason for that is because there are some really exact and obvious textual parallels between the Lazarus story in John 11 and the story between Jesus and Mary Magdalene in John 20. Hmm. It's like, not only is her name Mary and she's crying and she sees somebody that she loves rise from the dead, not hmm. just those things, but more subtle things like the word sudarion, which means handkerchief. It's a really rare word. Um, it's actually a Latin loan word. And when, when Lazarus comes out, he's got the handkerchief. Um, and then Mary Magdalene looks in the tomb in John 20 and the handkerchief is in there. Jesus says to Mary and the others, where have you laid him? And then, of course, in John 20, Mary says to Jesus, tell me where you have laid him, or I do not know where they have laid him, right? Mm. And it's the exact same Greek words. It's sort of like this mirror question between the two of them. Mm. I'm saying this was not accidental. Um, you know, there, there's a, a tomb, there's a stone. Um, so it's, and they talk about their brother, like Mary's like, my brother would not have died. And Jesus in John 20 says, go to my brothers. There's I think something like seven or eight identical textual parallels between these two stories. Hmm. Um, and then of course, when Mary anoints Jesus in John 12, he says, let her save the ointment for the day of my burial. Hmm. So you're starting to associate this Mary, Lazarus's sister with Jesus's burial. Hmm. And I'm saying this is not accidental. Um, the evangelist is trying to create a sort of connection between John 11 and John 20. But when you add Martha to the story, instead of thinking of John 20, you're going to be drawn over into the Gospel of Luke. You're going to think of the two sisters, Martha and Mary. And yeah, that's what I was just thinking of, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And I'm saying, first of all, those two sisters do not have a brother. Huh. It's just Martha and Mary. Also, Jesus seems to be in Galilee or Samaria, further north in that story. Whereas in John's gospel, they're right outside Jerusalem and Bethany, right? Hmm. So I'm saying if Martha were not in John's gospel, um, you would be thinking that Lazarus's sister Mary, the thought would be in your head, is this Mary Magdalene? Hmm. Like the, the author is encouraging you to think that. But if Martha's in the story, you're not going to think that. Instead, you're going to be like, oh, I know Martha and Mary. I love those ladies. Right, yeah. One like, of them served too much and one of them, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I'm saying this is my this is my theory. Obviously, it's not a proof, but sure. it's a theory that Martha has been added. And so the central issue with Mary Magdalene and Martha in John 11 is the Christological confession hmm. in John 11, verse 27. Um, so we all know the Christological confession in Matthew, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Peter, the Caesarea Philippi. Um, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, uh, you are the, the Christ. Wait, sorry, I, I mix up the two confessions. I, th I think he says you are the, the Christ. I think that's what he the says. The son of the living God, is that it? Is yeah. We could get the Bible out right now. <laughs> You've got your Bible. Matthew 16, 16. You are the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. I think that's what Peter Let's said. see. We're going to go there right now. Let's Actually, see you should just say it. What is Peter's? Because, you know, you're the guy and I'll be the girl. There you go. <laughs> Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Yeah. And so what is, what does Peter, what does Jesus say in response? And then Jesus replied, blessed are you Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by my flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. I will tell you that you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. Right. Yes. So that's a big one. And the thing is, is that in John, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever Mm. believes me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who's come into the world. Right. Yeah. Now, um, if, if, the confession means that much that you basically become a pillar of the church. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, of course it's on a woman's lips right now in John's gospel, Mm. but it's interesting that it's on the lips of a minor character. Mm. Right. Guess what? Tertullian who wrote in 208 AD, every single copy of against Praxius, which is a treatise he wrote at that time says that Mary gave the confession. And not Martha. Not Martha. And we also see Martha getting added in the oldest copy that we have. And literally, you can tell me basically any verse from John 11, 1 to John 12, 2, where Martha is there. And I can show you a manuscript where Mary is doing it instead of Martha. You can reconstruct almost the entire chapter of John 11 and John 12 with just Mary. So you can actually get a, it's like a, different version of scripture and um by using so my harvard theological review article sorry my master's thesis i did this research when i was at general seminary i submitted it for publication because i was like did i just find a corruption in the text of the gospel (laughs) right am i onto something here somewhere (laughs) fancy with this and i submitted it to the harvard theological review and it got through which was pretty Mm. exciting i found out later that my peer reviewer was elvin epp who was like one of the world's most important text critics. Wow. Like if I had known that, I would have been terrified. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but um, he actually wrote a very complimentary review of it. And um, so it got published. And in that article, which is in the July 2017 issue, I, I actually reconstruct the text of the opening of John 11 hmm. using just Papyrus 66 Codex Alexandrinus, which is another super important manuscript, and Codex Colbertinus, which is an old Latin manuscript. Hmm. And using just those three very important manuscripts of John, you can construct the text with no Martha. The, hmm. the first, basically the first 19 verses, you can do it without Martha. Um, and I found other manuscripts since then um, where you can kind of put it all together. Almost the entire, I haven't gotten quite the entire chapter, but almost the entire thing. So that is, um, to me, that seems to make it less likely that they're just random mistakes. Yeah. Because you can actually get a coherent story without Martha using real readings in very important manuscripts. So to your point, it's not a translation issue. It's like it was intentionally scratched out, removed, In the original language. Yeah. In the language. And I'm saying that um, Martha is pretty not threatening (laughs) yes but if peter becomes the pillar of the church because of his confession imagine if you're reading the gospel of john and people all the way back to the third century have thought that lazarus's sister mary was mary magdalene it has Hmm. always been a question in the entire history of the church it's not a new thing Hmm. imagine if lazarus's sister mary who is suggested to be mary magdalene she says 
that central confession in the Gospel of John. Then she anoints Jesus. Hmm. Then she's at the foot of the cross. Then she's the only person Jesus appears to first on Easter morning. Then hmm. he gives her an apostolic commission. That is a very prominent character. Yeah. She would basically be comparable in John's gospel to how Peter is in Matthew's gospel, right? Hmm. Yeah. So I'm saying people understood that. And they said, uh, uh, uh. And of course, in Greek, the difference between the word Maria and Martha is just one letter. Hmm. So you just change one letter and you've got a new person there. And now Mary Magdalene appears as three different women in John's gospel. There's the two women from Luke's gospel, Martha and Mary. And Mary Magdalene is still at the cross and the empty tomb. So I'm basically saying she has been diluted and diminished hmm. so that she cannot be a rival to Peter's authority. That's mm -hmm. what I'm, and then so it's, it's a reasonable scholarly theory. It's not a proof. Yeah. But if Martha has been added, I think it's because uh, it's a way of making sure that Mary Magdalene cannot rival Peter's authority. Mm -hmm. So instead of having one individual that's rival rivaling his authority, the uh, scribes or the writers split her into two or to three, as you said, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. So that it's not like one prominent figure against one, but it's one against, well, you have these three. Well, yeah. I, and I try to say, I think a fun analogy, kind of a tongue in cheek one, is if you think of James Bond movies. Yeah. You know, James, from movie to movie to movie, it's always James Bond in every mm -hmm. movie. But, and the woman is cool in every movie. Like she's doing something cool. Mm -hmm. But when you go to the next movie, it's a different woman. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have like all these Bond girls. <laughs> um, but think about how different James Bond movies would be if it was always the same woman mm. with James Bond. Right. It's, it's a totally different paradigm. Huh. If you have, um, you know, one prominent guy and a bunch of different women versus a prominent guy and a prominent woman at the same mm. time. Um, so, and I think our, our world. <laughs> It's sort of a James Bond world <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where there's like, there's one hero guy and then like the women are kind of always changing all the time. I mean, I don't mean that. Uh, I mean that in some ways that's a, that's sort of a, a paradigm that people think is cool. That yeah. is seen as sort of an ideal. Um, and I'm saying that might be because our scripture has made it that way, but is yeah. that the way that, um, is that huh. the will of God or the will of man? for that kind of a scenario. So in the article, uh, one of the, it says one of the points of your research, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe it says that Mary Magdalene caused uh, some kind of tension with Jesus's disciples, especially Peter. And that's more evident in some gospel accounts that are not part of our like traditional canon, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So can you tell me more about like, what do these other gospel accounts talk about in terms of the tension between the disciples and Mary, and is, and is that like part of this whole reason why she's kind of scratched out? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the questions that I had after I read the Complete Idiot's Guide. <laughs> you, <laughs> you do find out that, um, you know, these are texts that didn't make it into the Bible, and they would be seen, of course, as heretical. And I'm huh. sure that, um, I, I'm not quite sure who your listeners are. Um, maybe you've got a variety of different people in different stages of their faith, but I'm sure that 
maybe many people might not be as comfortable reading the Gospel of Thomas mm. or the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Philip. Um, and they were not included in the canon, um, partly because, well, maybe not the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas could be as old as our New Testament Gospels, but certainly the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary were written later. Mm. Um, so there's good reason for them not necessarily to be included in the Bible. Um, but regardless of their canonical status, they all show tension. They have stories where Mary Magdalene is the subject of controversy. Mm. And that tells us since it's happening in so many different texts, and there's another text called the Pista Sophia, which is a little later where we see the same thing. This is a clue to us that this was a real life situation on the ground, mm. that something either between women and men in positions of authority or specifically some memory about conflict between Peter and Mary Magdalene um, was something that people were still talking about. Hmm. And that's why they're writing about it in these gospels. If they were all written by the same person, you'd be like, oh, that's just one person. But there are hmm. four different texts. Hmm. Um, so in the gospel of Thomas, it's just a bunch of sort of sayings of Jesus is this very old gospel. Okay. Um, and the reason people didn't know it is because they were lost. I mean, we hmm. had church fathers talking about a gospel of Thomas. Um, nobody, by the way, ever mentioned the gospel of Mary, <laughs> which is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> because we have just as many copies that we've found of the Gospel of Mary as of the Gospel of Thomas. So that means they were both circulating, but the church fathers preferred not to mention that there was mm. a Gospel of Mary, which I think is pretty interesting. Mm. Um, but uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, um, at the end of it, Peter says, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And in the Gospel of Mary, it starts out that the, that it starts out with Jesus there and then he kind of gives them some instructions and then he, you know, he disappears hmm. and then they all feel um, very scared and Mary stands up and comforts them and says, you know, no, turn, turn our hearts toward the good. Like, let's not be scared. Let's remember what the savior told us. And then Peter says, Mary, tell us, we know that um, you were closer to the savior that he loved you more than all other women, which hmm. is interesting. And he says, tell us something that you remember that he told you. And then she shares this vision, sort of an esoteric vision of um, the ascent of the soul, hmm. which um, would be considered, some would consider it Gnostic, um, others might not, but um, it's it's definitely not what Peter was expecting. Mm. <laughs> and um, he gets angry and he says are we to listen to a woman you know like did he love did the savior love her more than us mm. <laughs> and then um levi says peter calm down you're becoming hot-headed and you're you're um contesting with the woman like the adversaries mm. like you know the people who either the spiritual adversaries in the world or even just against the rulers of the world um, who are, you know, contesting against the apostles, right? Mm. And he says, you, you know, you've always been hot-tempered. And he says, if the Savior made her worthy, who are you to reject her? Mm. So basically it ends on sort of a tense note, <laughs> but Levi stands up for her. And then they all go out to preach the gospel. So that's, that's the gospel of Mary. That's probably a second century text. Most people okay. agree that that's second century. 
Hmm. And um, when is that written in re- in relation to like the Gospel of John? Well, the Gospel of John is probably the end of the first century. Okay. And it looks like the Gospel of Mary might have uh, had some contact with John. Hmm. There's a few kind of moments where it, um, Mary says, I have seen the Lord in a vision. She says hmm. that. So it's like, it sounds kind of like John 20, 18, where she says, I have seen the Lord. So it's, it seems likely maybe that whoever wrote the gospel of Mary might've heard even just like an early oral version of John hmm. um, that was circulating. So people think that um, the gospel of Thomas seems fairly independent of the hmm. synoptics. So it's really very old, hmm. um, but the gospel of Mary probably might've had some contact. And in fact, it's got some other direct quotes, I think from Matthew. So we know that the gospel of Mary is like a little bit later. Hmm. Um, and these gospels played like a, a, a role in people's faith in the early church. Is that correct? Like oh, I've heard, absolutely. I've heard varying things. Like, I mean, in seminary, I was always taught that's crazy stuff. Don't, you know, it's not in our Bible kind of thing. So we don't really pay too much mm-hmm. attention to it, but I'm coming across other, uh, you know, thinkers now and scholars who are saying like these books, these letters, whatever you want to call them, played a, a large role in people's faith. Is that true? They certainly did. Yes. Hmm. I mean, we've, we have found, um, one big copy each of the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Thomas and two small fragments of different manuscripts of each of those. Hmm. And, um, in different parts of, um, the Mediterranean. And remember these books were totally banned, um, Hmm. in the fourth century. This is something to remember when people say it's not in our Bible, they need to remember that the canon of our Bible is a fourth century imperial product. Yeah. This is not the decision that was made um, in the second century of a closed canon. People were starting to talk about a closed canon in the second century, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seem to have Mm. been decided around then. But um, there were other texts circulating and sort of the closure of the canon didn't happen until Athanasius's 39th festal letter. He was the Bishop of Alexandria. And I think that was in 367 AD. And remember Athanasius um, was one of the bishops at the council of Nicaea. Um, So this is, you know, after Constantine converted and sort of legitimized Christianity in the Roman empire, Mm. whenever we're holding our Bible and we say it's in the Bible, this is a Roman imperial product. Mm. There are other Christian texts that were considered not to fit Mm. with whatever Roman imperial patriarchy sanctioned as Christianity. Mm. And um, some would see it as providential that in 1945, a jar was discovered with dozens of these books, Mm. um, the Nag Hammadi scriptures. And that's where we get our copy of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Mary was actually discovered um, at the end of the 19th century, but not translated until the mid 20th century Mm. um, or or even transcribed or published. So Mm. it's only in the last 100, 150 years that we've even found out about these books and been able to read them on their own terms. We do have, you know, church fathers talking about like, Oh, that gospel of Thomas don't read that. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Um, But you know, the gospel of Thomas, if anybody is listening to this and thinking, should I read this? Should I not, you know, or even being just sort of on the fence about it. I would always, I always suggest the gospel of Thomas Mm. as a good beginner starting place. um, Because I think most scholars, think it's quite possible that there are words of Jesus 
preserved in the Gospel of Thomas that are not in our New Testament. And you look at the Gospel of Thomas, and sometimes you're like, that's my Lord and Savior talking. Like, you just listen. Yeah. You're like, I know that guy. But it's something that is not in your Bible. Um, the Gospel of Thomas, I think many scholars would say that it is possible that it preserves additional sayings of Jesus that are not in our New Testament. So I recommend anybody start there. Um, hmm. It's not too weird of a book. Now, when you read, like, for instance, yourself, when you sit down and you read the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, do you read it with a different mindset than you would read your Bible? And I'm asking you that because like, I come out of a evangelical background and it's, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible's mm-hmm. the Bible and the Bible's the word of God and everything else is, you know, it's not nearly on that level. But when you, when you open up your Bible and you put the Gospel of Thomas next to it, do you read them on like equal playing fields? Do you read one differently? Do you, like, what does that look like for you? Because I'm thinking some of our listeners might be wondering how to yeah. categorize that in their own mind, and their own faith. Well, that is a really good question. Um, I would say probably when I started reading those texts, hmm. I was a little bit hesitant. Yeah. Um, but like I said, when you hear the voice of Jesus, yeah. Just like, you know, in John 10, he says, you know, I know my own and my own know me. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you get chills when you read John 10, but I'm just like, whoa. I'm getting you know. chills right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that is Jesus talking. Or, yeah. you know, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, they who believe in me will never die. I'm like, that's Jesus talking. It's like that's my sheep I, will know my voice. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. so when you read Thomas, when I read Thomas, there are moments when I, get that feeling. Yeah. I would say, um, you know, that's my personal response to it. Not necessarily my scholarly response, a scholarly response. I would just treat it all as just like, these are early Christian texts. These are Mm. different Christians perspectives on Jesus. But if you're asking for my personal faith response, I would say, yes, there are moments in the gospel of Thomas when I feel that Mm. I wouldn't say I necessarily feel that from the gospel of Mary. Um, though there are some, I think really important things that the gospel of Mary tells us about what was going on in earliest Christianity around the roles of women. Mm. Um, and so I would, I mean, if you're just asking me personally, I've made those decisions based on, I suppose what Jesus says in John 10, you know, you recognize Jesus's voice yeah. um, as a Christian. So, um, and some of the texts in the Nag Hammadi scriptures are, just very strange. Hmm. It's true. Like the Apocryphon of John is a very weird book. <laughs> hmm. um, the, the the Secret Revelation of John, basically. It's that's a very weird one, but that's one that Irenaeus knew. Irenaeus kind of basically cites from it. So Irenaeus is a second century church father who writes about heresy, hmm. and he knows this book, and he basically cites things from it that when they found the Nag Hammadi jar, they're like, "Oh, here's the book that Irenaeus was talking about." Hmm. You know, so um, that one is definitely a bit odd. Um, but I suppose the Nag Hammadi scriptures, um, and not all of them are Nag Hammadi, like for instance, the Gospel of Mary was found separately. Um, mm. Some call them the Gnostic scriptures, but they're not all Gnostics. So you could just say the heretical scriptures. Right. <laughs> I would say um, I would recommend them for mature Christians. Okay. Um, I think that, uh, what does Paul say? You know, you start with milk and then you move on to meat, right? Um, I do recommend the Nag Hammadi scriptures for people who know Jesus. Mm. That's, 
it, just as a person of faith, yeah. um, I would say that. Uh, and as I said, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, and we are not biblical inerrantists, mm. unlike evangelical churches. So, yeah. um, so you know, my church knows exactly what I'm doing. My bishops know what I'm doing, and they're like, "You go, Libby." They're like, "Tell yeah. us what you found." Right. Um, they're they're not scared about thinking about these kinds of things. And honestly, I think it's a wiser way of doing things because if you make an idol out of the biblical text, then when you see variations in it, your idol will fail. Mm. Um, so if your faith is in something beyond the biblical text, I mean, it's not that the biblical text isn't important. It's not that we don't, it's not that Jesus isn't in there. Of course he is. Mm. You know, of course you can have a relationship with Jesus um, through your Bible. But don't confuse the Bible with God. Mm. Um, God is bigger than that. And so when I found issues in the biblical text as an Episcopalian, it had no, I mean, in, fa in fact, it strengthened my faith, which is really interesting because I was like, oh, wow, you know, God wanted a woman to be a leader. That was how I read mm. um, the Gospel of John. You know, of course, I realized it, it is a reasonable scholarly theory. It has been published and peer-reviewed by a top-tier journal. That doesn't mean it's a proof, mm. right? And different people might look at my data and come to a different conclusion. Um, but they're all, um, as long as it's been peer-reviewed and published, you can basically say it's a reasonable scholarly theory. Mm. Um, but so when I, when I come to this conclusion, you know, that Martha has been added to John for the diminishment of Mary Magdalene, I, I think two things. I think, first of all, wow, the text was more friendly to women. There was more leadership of women in early Christianity. That makes me, my heart swell with like, I love you, God, you know, that's yeah, wonderful. Sure. Um, and second of all, what a miracle that um, the manuscripts have been preserved that we, that we need to find our way back. Um, and it, it makes me think God, um, as, uh, for me, it's a pr profound expression of God's love for us that if at that time people just couldn't accept women leaders, um, God meets us where we're at. Mm. Um, you know, at that time, you know, patriarchy was all over the place yeah. and, yeah. um, women were not even considered, you know, valid witnesses, um, Sometimes they were considered property of men and um, it just, it wasn't a, a time when if, if there was a woman who could be a leader that it couldn't, you know, even the gospel of John says the spirit of truth could not be received. But for me, um, and again, this is my faith position, not my scholarly position. It's interesting because I started with a scholarly eye on it. Like what is going on here? Mm. But it was because of what I found that my faith, really cemented. I was like, wow, I cannot believe this. Like, this is, this is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt as though I was seeing a wound in the word. There was like a wound in the text mm -hmm. that, um, that was being shown to me. And it was so profound for me mm -hmm. um, that God makes God's self vulnerable. Um, God is vulnerable. And humans can do that to God. Um, that's, and of course, it's so humbling and it's so, um, 
you know, it's, 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 it was very, very profound for me, my experience with the text. Um, mm. And uh, I would say it, it certainly strengthened my faith. And I know that that's not the typical way that people approach the biblical text, but um, in the Episcopal church, there was room for that. And mm. I'm grateful to have been raised in that tradition. Wow. That's beautiful. As you're talking, I'm thinking about Mary and kind of what I was always taught growing up is that, you know, Mary was the, the prostitute who had seven demons. And I'm wondering, as you're talking, it's like bringing this whole nother angle of the Mary story, so to speak. But has the, I'm trying to figure out how to word my question, but has the, the downplay of the role of women throughout history kind of linked to this patriarchy stuff? Is that why the magnifying or the, the spotlight's always been put on Mary as the, as the prostitute that Jesus came along and helped make better. Like that's kind of like the picture I always have in my mind of Mary Magdalene, but you're showing me something different. So why is that emphasis on her being a prostitute? Like the thing that people always seem to latch on to. <laughs> you would have to ask Pope Gregory okay, because he's the person who originated that doctrine in 591 AD. <laughs> okay. It's his fault. <laughs> so it was his idea. Um, so here's the thing that I do have to nuance a little bit. You said two things there that need to be kind of teased out a little bit. You said, okay. I was taught that Mary Magdalene was the prostitute who had the seven demons. Yep. Now, there is no prostitute who has seven demons mm. <laughs> in our biblical text. Yep. There is Mary Magdalene in the gospel of Luke. It does say that she was healed of seven demons. Mm. So that is something that is in our biblical text. And it's in the long ending of Mark. You may or may not know that there's... Um, different endings of the gospel of Mark? Yes, that I know. Okay. Yeah. You know yeah. about that. Okay. So in uh, the Our long listeners ending, might not though. So yeah, so go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it depends again upon which biblical translation you're looking at. If you look at the King James version, it won't tell you that, hmm. but if you were to open the, the new revised standard version, it would show you the different endings and they would be put in brackets hmm. um, because they're generally not believed to have come from Mark himself. Hmm. Um, the short and the long endings of Mark. There's different endings of Mark and then uh, our oldest manuscripts end at Mark 16, eight when um, the women just flee the tomb afraid mm. and they don't actually tell anybody. It's just the end of the gospel. Mm. Um, so this ending of Mark is very awkward and uncomfortable. And some people think that endings were added to solve that awkwardness. Mm. Um, and there's different endings. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and so, uh, the King James wouldn't tell you that because um, the King James was um, was translated in 1611 from, I think, 12th century manuscripts, maybe 10th century manuscripts. Mm. Um, but we have found so many manuscripts since then that are so much older than what those translators had access to. Mm. Codex Sinaiticus, Codex, Codex Vaticanus. Um, there's also um, Papyrus 66, which I was telling you about, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Um, is not present in that in Papyrus 66, um, which I told you about, yeah. nor is it in Codex Sinaiticus or Codex Vaticanus. These are far, far older manuscripts than the mm. King James Bible. Um, but um, where were we going with this? We were talking about um, variations in the text and the gospel and the ending of Mark. Um, oh, we were talking about Mary Magdalene and her. Yeah, demons. we were teasing <laughs> that out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the long ending of Mark, it does also mention that Mary Magdalene um, was healed of seven demons but mm -hmm. it's quite possible that whoever wrote that ending had read Luke's gospel. Oh. Huh. Um, 
So it might just be Luke that has okay. that tradition about her being a demoniac. Um, but nowhere in the Gospels does it say that Mary Magdalene was a sinner, hmm. nor does it say that she was a prostitute. The It was Gregory the Great um, that made that church doctrine. Hmm. The reason for that is because, as I said, from the beginning of Christianity, everybody has wondered whether Lazarus' sister Mary, who hmm. does anoint Jesus, is Mary Magdalene. Hmm. But keep in mind that in John's Gospel, Mary is portrayed completely positively. She's just a, a woman of faith. She's not a sinner. She's, yeah. um, she understands Jesus maybe better than anybody else. She understands that he has to die. She's anointed mm-hmm. him for his burial. Um, Jesus speaks only positive words about her, and she has great understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has a name, <laughs> Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, in Luke's gospel, um, and so I'm saying that John suggests that the anointing woman and Mary Magdalene are the same woman because hmm. her name is Mary, the anointer, and she does all the same things that Mary Magdalene does in John 20. That is John. Okay. Hmm. So it's, it's hard sometimes for people who have been taught the Bible as history yeah. to separate these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that Luke's portrayal of the anointer is very different than John's portrayal of the anointer. Hmm. I'm suggesting that John did intend to suggest that Jesus's anointer was Mary Magdalene. Hmm. But Luke did not. In Luke's hmm. gospel, the woman is unnamed. She's a sinner from the city and it's in a totally different location. It's nowhere near Jesus's passion. It's far earlier in the narrative. Um, I think it's in the house of Simon the leper. Um, and uh, she's coming in and she just sort of an, like walks in and announced and, you know, Simon's like, oh, you know, if this guy were a prophet, he would see, he would know that she's a sinner. It's a yeah. totally different story. Yeah. And she doesn't have a name. It's just some sinful woman from the city. Um, and so, and then Mary Magdalene is introduced and she's named and we know who she is. And there's no talk about sins on her part or mm. prostitution. She is, she is basically, she was a demoniac that Jesus healed in Luke's mm. gospel, right? So it's tricky because people want to just roll it all into one story, which is yeah. what Gregory the Great did. Yeah. That's what Gregory the Great was doing. But if I had to say my scholarly opinion on this, um, Luke thinks that Jesus' anointer and Mary Magdalene are two different women. And he says that the sinful woman is probably, he says she's a sinner from the city and her hair is loose, which kind of hints that she's a prostitute. Let's say it explicitly, right. she could be some other kind of sinner but people have interpreted that way. Hmm. Um, but John's gospel, Mary, Lazarus's sister, is very similar to Mary Magdalene. And so the anointing woman, and it's, it's a totally different location. It's in Bethany in John's gospel, totally different circumstances. So they're two different stories. Uh, you could even say, some people think there's two different anointings. <laughs> hmm. Wow, it's amazing how this, this narrative has been spun by like the merging of all of these stories. And that's the narrative that so many people carry because I'm thinking to myself, I got to go back and read these stories now because yes. in my mind, like I just have always assumed that they're all the same. And so I don't think I ever read them with the intentionality yeah. of seeing them as separate stories. The anointing is one of the most difficult problems to solve between the gospels. It's famous for it. In fact, yeah. because the stories are totally different. Luke's version of the anointing is just a totally different story from Matthew and Mark's. It's funny because Luke 
had Mark's gospel, almost certainly. And if so, he has drastically changed the story. Remember, in Mark's gospel, the woman is anonymous. It is in Bethany, though. Um, And in Mark's gospel, Jesus says um, what she has done, uh, like they're saying, you know, why didn't they give the money to the poor? And Jesus says, um, she has done a great thing. What What she has done will be told in memory of her you know, forever, basically. And so Jesus is 100% complimentary of this anonymous woman in Mark's gospel, which we know that Luke had. Mm. So Luke has changed the story and we, we don't know why Luke has his own reasons, or maybe he heard some other story. He heard a different tradition, or maybe Luke, you know, somebody told him a different story that has changed for whatever reason. We don't Mm. know why Luke's story is the way that it is, but what has happened in church tradition is they all just kind of got lumped together. Yeah. And that is how Mary Magdalene became a prostitute. Yeah. Um, but there is literally nothing in any of the gospels that says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Hmm. Nothing at all. I have so many more questions for you. <laughs> my, sure. mind, my mind is scrambling, but uh, we, are, we are nearing the end of our, our time. But my, my one question I got to ask you as, as you're talking is why, why do you think like if, if John wants us to know that this anointer is Mary and Luke seems to intentionally leave her unnamed. Is there an agenda there that links back to uh, the way that Mary made the earlier disciples feel like, is there something going on? You th- I mean, in your scholarly opinion and your thought, like why is it that Luke, that Luke would do that and not make it as obvious as like John does? Well, I think Luke does not intend to portray the anointer as Mary Magdalene. I mean, she is not named yeah. And Mary Magdalene is named. Yeah. So, you know, he's, he obviously does not intend to portray them as the same person mm. in his gospel. Okay. Um, I'm just saying Luke thought that the anointer and Mary Magdalene were two different women. Got it. John seems to think that they are the same woman. The mm. trick is when people start assuming that it's history, when in fact they could have heard different oral traditions. As mm. far as an agenda, um, you know, we can't get into the minds of the evangelists. Sure, we don't know. Sure what they were doing. However, we do know that Luke does not give Mary Magdalene a resurrection appearance. Hmm. And um, he's the only author to do that. Hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Hmm. Um, so, but, and he also, he's also the only person to call her a demoniac, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so maybe Luke, um, and actually a lot of feminist scholars have argued that even though Luke seems to be the most woman friendly gospel, because he talks about women so much. Yeah. He's also very clear on, you know, what women's roles should be. Hmm. And um, Luke's presentation of women is basically as women who um, serve the apostles and Jesus and hmm. finance the ministry. Yeah. Um, the women do not get public speaking. Like Mary, it's true, the Magnificat with Jesus's mom at the beginning, yeah. she does get a big monologue, but that's in private. Hmm. And she's basically doing what she's told, right? Yeah. Which is, um, she's obviously very praised for that. Um, but Luke does not really allow women into public ministry, whereas Mm. John does. John allows the Samaritan woman to preach about Jesus, and he allows Mary Magdalene to preach about Jesus. They're two different perspectives on women's roles, and we just need to keep in mind we've got different evangelists with different views of what happened, and our Bible has preserved that for us, Mm. and we need to keep that in mind, you know, it's not that the Bible is clear, <laughs> like, right. well, maybe Luke is clear about what Luke thinks, but it might be different than what John thinks. And yeah. um, the Bible has preserved that diversity of perspective for us. It's not, we shouldn't flatten it. 
Mm. And we end up like Pope Gregory and we say that Mary Magdalene's a prostitute. Right. <laughs> we, know, get all, like, we get all crazy. Bible. Yeah. <laughs> right. The Bible is, is multidimensional. <laughs> and I think that it's no accident that we have multiple perspectives in our Bible and we should be paying attention to that. Mm. I love it. So what, uh, what resources have you found helpful uh, that you can let us in on that maybe the uh, beginner or intermediate uh, reader of the Bible might be able to go to maybe books, authors about Mary, about this sort of thing that you have found helpful? Well, let's see. I would certainly recommend if people are interested in finding out about the Nag Hammadi texts yep. and just reading them for themselves, um, there's two really good uh, books. I suppose the Nag Hammadi scriptures edited by Marvin Meyer Um, is the one that has the Gospel of Mary in it. Um, So that's probably, and it's just a big, thick book, and it's got tons of books. Some of them will blow your mind, and some of them are just very weird. (laughs) But it's it's those Nag Hammadi scriptures plus the Gospel of Mary, um, edited by Marvin Meyer. So that's primary texts from the second and third centuries of Christianity that did not make it into our Bibles. And if people are comfortable, I would recommend that volume. Um, There's also um, more on Mary Magdalene, Let's see, there's just a very exhaustive book by Jane Shaberg called The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene, which has basically every detail you would ever want to read <laughs> okay. about her. Um, so yeah, Jane Shaberg's The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene, though it's, it's, it's pretty dense, but it okay. has everything you might ever want to know. Okay. Um, and um, as far as books just about maybe what happened to Christianity mm-hmm. in those early days, you know, sort of a, a classic one is Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels. It's very readable. Um, and she talks about, you know, the possibility that anything that suggested that women, that there was a sacred, like a feminine aspect to God, or that women should have any leadership that that's kind of the stuff that didn't make it in. Okay, didn't make the <laughs> cut. Bible. Didn't make the cut. And is yeah. that because God wanted it that way? Or is that because the Roman Empire got to choose? Like, mm. you know, I think it's, it's a question we're thinking about. And so um, that's a, a classic book from like 1979, but hers is one of the most readable, accessible introductions to that stuff. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for dropping by. I'm going to have to read some of those books and uh, get you back on here to talk some more. (laughs) I would love to. And let's get coffee sometime in North Carolina. I would love to. Uh, I would love that. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Glenn. I went to the garden of the Holy Virgin, Mary most pure, conceived without sin. I was down on my knees with the dirt on my skin, and I asked for the blessing of the Magdalene. There she came to me in a state of grace, bearing things to reveal in this earthly place. Secret songs of the flesh, like a holy hymn. Oh, I asked for the wisdom of a Magdalene. She's a bleeding heart, full of blinding light, which she carefully conceals till the time is right. Oh, a woman heavy with the dark of night. She will do, hallelujah, what she came here to do. She is ready now to do what she came to do.
Blessing of a man. 